what the new year is going to look like. There has been a lesson for us to learn. And the main lesson of the book of Job is not why believers suffer. There is nowhere in the scriptures that tells us we are immune to suffering. Suffering is not the main subject of the book. Behind it, behind the suffering, is all the great teaching of repentance. Repentance in a child of God. When a sinner comes to Christ, they're to repent. Paul told the jailer at Philippi in Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your house. Acts 17.30 reads, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. And in Acts 17.30, Paul didn't say anything about repentance. He didn't mention the word. But repentance is in the word believe. Because you see, when a a sinner turns to Jesus Christ in faith, he also turns away from sin. The two go together. One can't say that they have faith in Jesus Christ and still live the old life. It's a contradiction. Paul said in Romans 10, 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him, notice, will not be put to shame. But believing is an action word. And if I really believe in something, it's going to be seen in the way that I live. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. He said to the Thessalonians, Because you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. He said, which also effectively works in you who believe. Paul said in Romans 6, 17 through 18, But God be thanked, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, there's something important in these two verses. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that the word of God worked effectively in those who believed. And then Paul said in Romans 6, 17, 18, thank, that, that God be thanked that you were slaves, when, that, that though you were slaves of sins, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that to, to which you were delivered. You see, the word believe and the word obeyed are the same thing. If you believe the word of God, you obey the word of God. And if you obey the word of God, it's because you believe the word of God. A lot of people say, oh, I believe in God. But they don't obey God. There's no repentance. There's no change in life. In the case of the Philippian jailer, it was probably idolatry that he turned away from. That would be his repentance. You see, turning to Jesus is the most important part of repentance. That's what repentance is. Many Christians today and many lost sinners, it's all about themselves. They're self-absorbed. 
They're self-sufficient. I don't need Jesus. Jesus is just a crutch. It's just for those who are weak. But anyone who is self-sufficient needs to repent. And this is what the book of Job will show. This is the great lesson of the book of Job. Job now, in chapter 27, continues his response to Bildad in the last couple of chapters. This next subject is Job's argument that his troubles are not caused by some great sin in his life. Job told his friends, look, I've departed from evil. I no longer have anything to do with evil, so evil is not what's causing my problems. Job's commitment to depart from evil was very serious, and he was very committed. He was more sincere than ever not to have anything to do with evil, and that's the only way that you'll stay away from evil. Evil is very aggressive. It comes at you hard. It doesn't leave you alone. And you have to be serious about uh, resisting it, and you have to be serious about separating yourself from it, or you'll be eaten up by it. A casual attitude will never defeat sin. Paul said in Romans 6, 6, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You see, sin has to die in me. It can't be neutralized. It can't be restrained. It can't be suppressed. It has to be crucified. It has to be put to death. Now in verses 1 and 2, let's read. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice? And the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter? Now, what Job says here in verse 27 shows both the the worthiness in his oath and also the dishonor in his oath. First, the worthiness. He uses the name of God in an oath. He didn't use the name of God as a curse word or in profanity. And using the name of God in an oath is the highest, most honorable oath that you can take anywhere. And no, no oath had more or carries more obligation or is more serious than an oath in the name of God. Now in the court, you know, and I don't know if they still do it, but they swore you in on a Bible. Put your hand on your Bible, raise your right hand and swore to God that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And then the dishonor of what Job says here in verses 1 and 2 is he says, even though he uses the name of God to make his oath the highest in obligation, Job dishonors God by saying, God has taken away my justice and my soul is bitter. He's blaming blaming God for not being fair to him and, and God's the one who's made my soul bitter. And many times we do blame God for our bitterness. Job is not speaking very highly about God here. And this is the kind of talk that caused Job's three friends to criticize him. Look at verses three and four. As long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness nor my tongue utter deceit. What a great commitment Job makes here. You want to stay away from sin and trouble. 
You want to watch your mouth. I can't think of many things that are harder to do than trying to control the mouth. To commit it. To keep from saying evil things. Now to commit from saying evil things is easy to do. But it's very hard to keep that commitment. But if you're sincere in staying away from evil, from resisting evil, you have to start with your mouth. Or you'll never depart from it. Listen to what James says in chapter 3. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is also so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. Notice what he says about it. It's an unruly, hell, uh, an unruly evil. It's full of deadly poison. Doesn't have a lot of thing, nice things to say about the tongue. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the simil- similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursing. My brother, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. James 3, 2 through 12. Psalm 141.3. The psalmist says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. If we truly practice our faith, it will be seen in what we say. Man, our words are everything. Look at verses 5 and 6. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. Job's dedication to stay away from evil is a lifetime decision and commitment. That's the only kind of dedication in this matter that's worth anything. Staying away from evil for a little while, then going back to it, it's really senseless when it comes to departing from evil. But Job's dedication is the right kind of dedication. It's the kind of commitment we need in living a holy life and serving God. The sincerity of Job's dedication is that it's, it's heart dedication. It's in the heart. It's coming from the heart. It's more than just talk. That goes into the heart. A lot of our so-called dedication today. It fails because it's not in the heart. It's not from the heart. 
<clears throat> we may sign a decision card. You know, sometimes we get those little booklets and they got a decision card and you sign it. And, you know, yes, I accepted the Lord today. And is it OK to call you and, you know, to do these things to help you with your walk with Christ? We may sign a decision card. We may say all kinds of impressive things. But it doesn't last because, again, it's not heart deep. It was an emotional thing, which means it's not really sincere. It's just talk. <clears throat> Job defends his righteousness against the things that, that his friends accused him of. He said, that's not true, you guys. I'm a man of integrity. I, I don't mess around with evil. They accused him of being a great sinner back in chapter 22. Eliphaz even went so far as naming some really ugly sins that he felt sure that Job had committed. Also in chapter 22. Now Job is not saying I'm not a sinner. Because all men, Paul said, have fallen short of the glory of God. But what Job is denying is that I'm not guilty of great sin. Like you guys have accused me of. Which would bring about my great troubles. He says here in verse 5. Notice far be it for me that I'm going to say that you are right. Hey you guys are wrong. This is just Job's plain words. That he really rejects his three friends about. Their accusation of his sinfulness. Now this accusation is mostly implied by Job's three friends. But as we've already mentioned, Eliphaz came right out and called Job a great sinner. Back in chapter 22 and then accused him of sins that he felt sure that Job had done. But Job says here, far from me that I'm going to say you're right. I'm not guilty to the things that you said. Verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 7. May my enemy be like the wicked and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. So to defend, to to emphasize defending himself, his case, Job says, look, those who accuse me, they're my enemies. They're not my friends. They're wicked. They're not righteous. Because to accuse me like they've done, they have to be wicked. These three guys had an evil streak in them to accuse Job the way they did. And we've mentioned before that, that we believe they were envious of Job. Because of the great respect that he had among men. And the wealth that he had and the position in society that he held. And that his three friends were secretly glad to see Job afflicted. Because you see it brought him down and it made him look. It made them look like they were better than Job. Oh he's a terrible sinner. That's why he's been brought down. That's why he's going through that. And we're not. And that's why we look so good. Verse 8. For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much if God takes away his life. The word hypocrite here in its broader meaning means profane, impious, ungodly. So Job isn't limiting this destiny of a man's hope to just one class of sinners. It's more than that. All the profane and ungodly and all the wicked have no hope in God. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul says, those without Christ are those who have no hope. You see, evil takes away our hope of eternal well-being. Verse 9. Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? 
In other words, will God hear my prayer when I call upon him? If I'm living an evil life? The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If we allow sin in our lives, it will really hurt our prayer life. It will have a lot to do whether or not my prayers get answered. And the verb regard in verse six in Psalm 66, 18 means to recognize and to cherish, to be unwilling to confess and forsake known sins. So the psalmist was saying, if I cherish, recognize and cherish, and I'm unwilling to confess and forsake sins, God's not going to hear my prayers. Because it means I'm approving of what God condemns. When we recognize sin in our hearts, man, on the spot, we have to judge it immediately, confess it and forsake it. Because if we don't, the Lord Jesus cannot work on our behalf. To cover our sin is asking for trouble and it's asking for discipline. We need to understand that sin is a huge barrier. It's a huge, huge wall to answered prayer. Man, the heavens become impenetrable. They become like brass, the Bible says. And our prayers don't get through. Job's message is that the unrepentant sinner won't get any help from God when he cries out to him for help. Because, Isaiah said in 59 verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from God. Notice, your sins separate you from God. It cuts the communication line. And he says, and your sins have hidden God's face from you so that he will not hear. Verse 10. Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? The greatest happiness is, in life comes from God. Psalm 1611 tells us that in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. You know, a lot of people, when they think about heaven, they think about streets of gold. They're the kind of things that we hear from the world. Streets of gold, pearly gates, Peter standing there greeting in all the New people that have come into, into glory. They think of angels. Remember at, at a time a while back, angels was a big thing. There were little statues and pictures and, and angels. It was, it was all about angels. But the main point of heaven is not pearly gates. It's not streets of gold. It's not about angels. It's not about the glorified saints. The main glory and the main joy of heaven is Jesus Christ. You see, that's what makes heaven, heaven. That narrow road that, that Jesus encourages us to stay on, to walk in life. On that road is where he shows us that, that it, will, it will even end in a greater life when we get to heaven. And then when we get to heaven, we will be in his presence and we will experience the fullness of joy. 
and the pleasures of God in heaven forever, for all eternity, never to be interrupted. A lot of pictures of heaven is of angels with their harps sitting on clouds, white puffy clouds. But you know, when you read the Bible, it doesn't describe anything like this. In our new glorified bodies, we will be like Jesus. And you know, we will worship him and we will serve him forever. And the pleasures of heaven will be way beyond any pleasures that we could ever think of or that we've ever known here on earth. And as we enjoy the Lord Jesus and we serve him, we won't be restricted. We won't be hindered by time, physical weakness or the consequences of sin. And if we don't find any joy or even delight in God, that will really limit our joys in life. So the sinner's life is doomed. Their happiness is doomed. It says here, will he, will he always call on God? In verse 10, will he always call on God? The habit here is the habit of praying often. Will he always call on God? Sin will doom that habit of prayer to death. Sin will keep you from praying. And if your prayer life or my prayer life is lacking, it might be because we need to repent. We need to do some confessing and repent. The commentator Barnes said this. The hypocrite prays when he makes a profession of religion on some extraordinary occasion. But he doesn't always maintain habits of prayer. He suffers, he suffers or he allows his business to break in upon his times of prayer. Or he neglects secret devotion on the slightest pretense and soon abandons it, abandons it altogether. He says, you know, he allows his business or anything else, really. He allows other things to break in upon his times of prayer. And he neglects that secret devotion with the slightest excuse. Oh, I got to do this. I don't have time for that. And then after pretty soon, he just doesn't pray, period. When, and then Barnes goes on to say, one of the best tests of character is the habit which we have of calling upon God. Philippians 4, 6, Paul said, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer. And supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The other night I was listening to an 11 minute passage on this verse by A.W. Tozer. He read it, but he spoke. He just mentioned in everything by prayer. Supplication is a form of prayer. Thanksgiving is a form of prayer in everything by prayer. Make your requests be known to God. In everything by prayer. Not in everything by science. Or everything by politics. Or everything by doctors. Or everything by, you know, gurus. Or whoever the, the man of the day is. Everything by prayer. Everything. Verse 11. 
I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Job's three friends thought that Job needed to be taught different things about God. But what the things, but, but what the things they had said uh, to, to Job didn't add anything to what Job already knew. They were the ones who needed to be taught about God from Job. Job is saying here that he's going to teach them about the hand or the power of God in this subject about the end of, of sinners. It's very hard to be faithful to the message of God when it, be, when it involves judgment on sin and sinners. The first thing that, that somebody says that you know, when you tell him, you know, without Christ, you know, you're going to go to hell. What, what gives you the right to say that? Who says, I, I, I'm, I'm not good? Even preachers who, want, who will water down their messages because they don't want to offend the sinners. They don't want to tell them that they're sinners and they're going to be judged and go to hell if they don't have Christ. They don't want to lose the people. And many times they practically leave out the message of judgment in hell or water it down. But Job says here in verse 11, I am going to be faithful to give you this message and he's not going to hide it. He's not going to diminish any part of this judgment message. He is going to tell the truth about the day of judgment upon evil. Verse 12. He says, surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave? Notice, notice with complete nonsense. And Job gets gets a little sarcastic here. He says, you've seen all of this. And yet you, you say all of these useless things to me. If these three friends knew that what they were talking about, Job wouldn't have to teach them. And Job insisted that his side of the argument was so clear. In other words, that the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked often prosper. And the long speech of his friend's position is introduced and it's ridiculed by Job as rambling nonsense. You guys, you guys are just speaking senselessness. And the proof of their ignorance is that they're acting foolishly. He says, with complete nonsense. Job complains here about the failure of his three friends to give him any relief. All they've done is add burdens, added more burden to his life. They haven't helped him at all. They haven't lessened any burdens at all for Job. Verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. This is what the wicked will receive from God, Job says. This is their inheritance from the Almighty. We, the redeemed, have a wonderful inheritance. We have a wonderful future to look forward to. But that's not the case with the unrepentant sinner. Job talks about the sinner's future as a heritage. In other words, this is what you can expect for your inheritance, sinners, without Christ. The word heritage means inheritance. The word portion here means an allotment, like an inheritance. This is going to be what's bequeathed to you for your sinful life. In this earth without Christ. Unrepentant sinners will inherit hell. Their inheritance includes eternity in hell. Verse 14. 
If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. And his offering, offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Wickedness affects the situation of a person's children. Which are their heirs. In other words, what they inherit might not be something good. It may not be silver, which, you know, represents riches, but rather death. He may leave them money, but they need more than that. You know, a lot of us make out wills and testaments to our kids and we leave them ourselves. But you know what? The best thing that we can leave them is a legacy of Jesus Christ. Some godly parents haven't given their children money. But they've given them spiritual upbringing. They've raised them in the ways of the Lord. They've raised them up in the ways of the Lord, which is so much more than any amount of money. I remember Pastor Chuck saying, you know, God's blessed me in ministry and I've been able to do a lot of neat things. And, and he says, but if I don't see my kids in heaven, he says, my life has been wasted. There's a double meaning here in verse 14. The meaning is that the children of the wicked will lack bread. We often see that today in our society. Many are homeless and on welfare as a result. Because the wicked often spend their money on alcohol or drugs and other things. So they don't have much left for things that the family needs. Solomon tells us some people are poor because they're lazy. Proverbs 10, 4 and 14, 23. He says some people are poor because they have the wrong values. Proverbs 16, 16. Some people are poor because of wrong planning. Proverbs 21, 5. Some people are poor because they follow sinful pleasures. Proverbs 21, 17. Now, it, I, it is not always because they do those things. There are people who just have bad circumstances. And it places them on the street and they're homeless. It's not because they've all made bad choices or, you know, poor planning or sinful pleasure, whatever it is. But Solomon says many people are because of those wrong choices and plans and sinful pleasures. The other meaning here is that bread doesn't satisfy and early in Jesus' ministry, remember when he was being tempted by Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone. The wicked learn that bread does not satisfy by itself. We need more than physical bread. We need the bread of the word of God. We need the manna of heaven. We need the bread of life who is Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Those who survive him shall be buried in death and their widows shall not weep. In other words, those who survive will die of a plague and not even their widows will mourn them. He says, those that remain of him shall be buried in death. Not just that they'll die and, and be buried, they'll be buried, but They'll be lost sight of. They'll be forgotten in their death. And it says their widows won't even, be, won't even weep for them. The death of his children shall not be mourned by their widows, he says. It's a, that was a very shameful thing in the eyes of the Jews, not to ha be mourned over. 
The death of the wicked is often without respectability, without honor, but with shame. And here Job mentions this characteristic that often comes upon the wicked in their homes. The people that is the family that is left behind, when that wicked one dies, they often have a dishonored ending. They end in dishonor. Now this can happen to good people too. But the dishonor here is in the lack of real mourning by the widows. Verses 16 through 17. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. The wealthy wicked often have their wealth, you know, given to others that are not their family. The wealth that they accumulated and many times in wicked ways doesn't stay in their hands or in their family inheritance. Wicked people often can't hang on to their wealth because God has many ways of taking it away from them. Verse 18. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. Speaking of the flimsiness and the lack of stability, that's what's emphasized here about the places where the wicked live. They make them. They're pre- they, 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 they think they're preparing a place that will survive for a long time. But their homes, Job says, is, is like a moth, that of a moth. It's not going to last. They crumble, they decay. And the glory of the wicked that they, that they used to have, it perishes. It doesn't last. Verse 19. The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. The wealthy wicked ride many times in honor. You know, they're, they're well respected and esteemed in this life, but it all changes really quickly when they die. They go from honor to humiliation in, their, in the review of their story and their life when they die. Honor often doesn't come upon the wicked when they die. Rather, humiliation is their end when death comes. Verse 20. Job goes on to say, Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. In other words, the fate of the wicked includes great fears. These fears come upon the wicked, Job says, like a flood and they overwhelm them. And those who die without Jesus Christ face the same fears. And hell is no place for you or your, or your friends. It's no place where you and your friends will laugh. Oh, I remember the good old days and tell funny stories. Hell, hell is a place of horrors and awfulness and pain and agony. Verse 20 through 22. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its wicked, uh, from its power. The word of, uh, Job describes here the tragedies that come upon the wicked because of their sins. Job says they come like a windstorm and it sweeps the wicked away and it hurls them into nothingness. Verse 23 in closing. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Now, this clapping, it isn't applause. It's kind of a sarcastic 
reproaching, reproachful clause. As the second sentence says in the verse, as it shows, you know, it's kind of like, very good, way to go, dummy, you know. Again, it's, it's a reproach, a clause of reproach. Wickedness eventually loses any honor in it that it may have gotten in this world. And we often see this experience of wicked people. Whether, no matter who they are. No matter what their walk in life is. Somebody that's prominent was well known and just, you know, after their death, we learn about their immoral behavior, their, 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 the things they did in their, in their life. And this starts to just erase their honor that people held them in such high esteem for. And as, and as we all know, some of our present world a lot of our present world today doesn't look down on moral behavior. But in time it does. And Job says the wicked are doomed to lose their honor sooner or later. Father, we thank you once again for your word, Lord. We thank you so much for your love and your grace. And Father, I pray that we, Lord, that we would take your word so seriously, God, that we'd abide in it, that we would love it, that we would shun evil, that we would just turn away from it, we'd resist it, we'd walk the other way, we'd have nothing to do with it, God. And that, Lord, we would live for you, walk with you, God, serve you, witness of you glorify you god god let us be such a bright light in such a dark world god lord let us in everything by prayer make our requests known to you lord bless those here tonight god be with them Protect them as they go home, Lord. And Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our life. We thank you so much for showing us who you are, God. Even in times like this, God. The times that we've experienced, God. You are mighty. You are still omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, God. And you judge righteously, God. You know all things. Let us be all things to all men. In the name of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.